the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Deuteronomy. Moses was calling all the people of Israel to love God supremely. He started the book of Deuteronomy by reminding the nation how God had provided for them and sustained them all these years, even when they were rebellious. Moses told them to love God with all their heart, soul, and strength. Their obedience was to be out of love for God, but their obedience was to persist even when God called them to do difficult tasks. We join Pastor Will in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 1. Deuteronomy is all about loving God supremely. But in light of all God's done for Israel, that's what Moses has called the nation to do, to love God with everything they've got back for what he's done for them. And then in chapter 6, Moses spent the entirety of that chapter about how to do that. How do we love God? We've been talking about that the last few Sunday nights. But one of those points mentioned in chapter 6 was that they were not to compromise God's difficult commands. And God mentioned one command in particular, and it was driving out the Canaanites who were currently in the promised land. Israel, of course, did not obey this command completely, and it hurt them later on, right? I mean, this got them in trouble. So why was this command such a difficult command for them to carry out? Well, as we answer that question, maybe see why it's important to obey God's difficult commands without compromise so that we can experience all the blessings that he promises to us. So chapter 7, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 1. Now, when the Lord your God shall bring you into the land, whither you go to possess it, and has cast out many nations before you, the Hittites, and the Girgashites, and the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations that are greater and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God shall deliver them before you, you shall smite them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy unto them. Here we see this very heavy command from God that when they go into the promised land that they are to utterly destroy the Canaanites that are there. In verse 1 we see here first off before he gets to what they're going to do God tells them what he's going to do. I love it here it says when the Lord your God shall bring you into the land where you go to possess it. I love that he says not if. God made a promise to Israel back in Exodus 6 8. Remember God made three promises to the nation? I'll bring you out of Egypt I will be your God and you'll be my people. We'll have a relationship and I will bring you into the land. And here God says, when I do that, when I fulfill that promise, when I keep that promise, God promises that he will keep it. He says, when I have cast out these seven other nations that are bigger and stronger than you are, that's my job. I will make sure that I accomplish this. To do that, God is going to have to empower this smaller, lesser trained, lesser experienced nation of Israel to defeat 
not just one, but seven other nations. I mean, that's going to be miraculous. They are outnumbered. They are outgunned. They are outtrained. They're not experienced enough in this. But God, by a miracle, says he is going to drive them out. I love that the burden of victory rests upon the Lord. And the cool thing is the same is true for you and me. You know, I don't have to look at my own abilities or inabilities when it comes to obeying God. There are so many times the Lord's told me to do stuff, and I'm like, Lord, uh, I can't do that. And the Lord says, trust me, watch what I'll do. And you know, you take that jump, and you take that jump off the cliff, and then you see that underneath are the everlasting arms. The Lord calls us to do impossible things. He calls us to do things that require miracles. You know, I remember the very first building I ever got at the other church, it was a huge step of faith for us. I think our, you know, our income was probably around like, I don't know, five or $600 a month as a church. We're a teeny tiny church. And we were gonna be upgrading from our current building we were in, which cost us, I don't know, maybe 200 bucks a month. It's gonna go all the way up to 500 bucks a month. So it was a huge step of faith for us. And I remember we went into the meeting, we prayed about it together as elders, and we really felt like the Lord wanted us to do it. It was a school. And we got into the school, and you know, we signed the contract. I got in the car, and one of the elders looks at me, he goes, you okay? And I said, no. <laughs> I said, how are we going to afford this? I said, we have other bills. And you know, he looked at me, he goes, I don't mean to discourage you, but you've already signed the contract. So. But the idea was we knew it was something that God was going to have to come through. That he's either going to have to grow the church. When I came down here and you know, learned about the building we had here, I learned that when we as a church made a decision to buy this synagogue, we knew the church had to grow. We didn't have the finances to afford this. But we, we were trusting that God had opened the doors. It was a great deal. And we were believing him that he would do the miraculous. And what is it? Eight years later, we're still here. The Lord's providing. And so that, the idea is following the Lord is like that. It requires you to trust the Lord for the miraculous sometimes. You can't look at your abilities or inabilities when it comes to obeying God. That doesn't mean I don't have any responsibilities, though. For the Lord says, when the Lord your God shall deliver them before you, he says, you shall smite them. The Lord says, I'm not going to smite them. (laughs) You're going to have to smite them. This is Israel's part. Now, Israel's part had multiple facets to it, three of them. It says, number one, you shall utterly destroy them. Number two, you shall make no covenant with them. Number three, nor shall you show mercy unto them. Now, that phrase, utterly destroy, it means to place under the ban it means to completely destroy because none of it was to be taken as plunder or booty or anything. Now we talk about that word because it's foreign to our day and age. The very idea that we might profit off the Iraq war was all sorts of heresy over here in the U.S. Realize that's not how things were back then. You defeated somebody, you got their stuff. That's just how it worked, okay? I'm not saying that's right or wrong. I'm just saying that's how it worked. That's how culture was. And what God is telling Israel, not so with you. This is not an invasion to make you rich. You are my instrument of judgment upon a wicked people that I've been calling to repentance for 400 years. So you're not to take any slaves. You're not to take any extra wives, which was the common practice of the day for the victors. You're not doing any of that. You're going to wipe everybody out, completely destroy them. Secondly, you will make no covenant with them, no deals. You don't come to him and say, listen, you know, we really don't want to fight you. You're more than us. How about we make a deal? He goes, no, you are my instrument of judgment. This isn't some problem you have with them and you're getting them back. This isn't just some invasion. You are my instrument of judgment upon a wicked people. I have given them 400 years the choice to repent and instead they chose to rebel and now I am exacting judgment upon them, which brings into the third part. Nor will you show mercy mercy unto them. This means to take pity, to be gracious, or to show compassion. Now, that's hard for us, because when we look at how we're to treat people, we're supposed to show compassion. 
That's how, by the way, you know that the saints under the altar in Revelation 5 aren't the church. The church won't be martyred. Then we won't be here during the period of the seven-year tribulation. That can't be us. Because what do they cry out for? Vengeance. They cry out for vengeance. What are we supposed to pray for enemies? That God would be merciful to them. We're supposed to have compassion. That's how you know the church won't be there in the tribulation. Those martyred saints are tribulation saints. They're in a different dispensation. They're a different dispensation. The church is a unique group. Israel's a unique group. And the tribulation saints will be a unique group. We don't ask for vengeance upon them. Now, Israel, though, was God's hand of vengeance upon people. And so, yes, these are people God created, but God had given them 400 years to turn around. And instead, they refused and became more evil in their ways when archaeologists were very excited to get over into the Middle East as you know, things were progressing you know, technologically and they could dig deeper and stuff, they wanted to find out, are the Bible stories true? And when they got to that level of where the Canaanites had been destroyed, they said there was almost no home that didn't have the skeletal remains of an infant inside the foundation of the home. That's what they would do. They would take their firstborn child and they would sacrifice it to their gods and then they would place the corpse in the foundation of the home so that God would bless the home. How's that for a people group? God had given them plenty of time to repent, but they'd done more evil and more evil and more evil, and their time is finally up. While that sounds harsh, judgment is harsh. There will be no mercy at the great white throne judgment of God. None of us will be sitting there going, oh, this is horrible. We won't be doing that. We will be saying, as the scripture says, just and true are your ways, O God. You have been right and fair. Lord, you've been more than fair, more than gracious to every person that experiences judgment here. So judgment is harsh. Because judgment is harsh, that's why God is slow in judgment. In the book of Nahum, chapter 1, verse 3, some of you are like, Nahum? I didn't even know there was a book of Nahum. And find Matthew and turn a few books left. It's one of the last books of the Old Testament. Nahum, chapter 1. Here we see these two attributes of God, that he is righteous and has to judge, but he's also patient and slow to anger together. We see them together, side by side here. Remember, God called Jonah to go preach to the people of Nineveh. And what did the people of Nineveh do? They repented, right? And God forgave them. He gave them, as the VeggieTales show says, a second chance. He forgave them. It was awesome. The nation of Assyria and the city of Nineveh, they repented. They cried out to the Lord for forgiveness. And God did. But later on, another generation went right back to their wicked ways. And Nahum is another prophet God sent to call them to repentance, but they didn't repent this time. And so God was going to judge them. And so here in Nahum 1.3, it says, the Lord, he is slow to anger, but he's also great in power, and he will not at all acquit the wicked. There's this idea out there, well, God's a good God, so he just kind of forgives everybody. So that's how we all know if we try our best, we're going to go to heaven. Hogwash. You won't find that anywhere in a Bible. Nowhere in a Bible. Because that's not true. It is not, you know, we do our best and then God's just good so he forgives. No, that's an insult to the cross, that idea. The the very idea that God would send his son to that kind of a death to atone for our sins is a waste if that's how it is. God is good and because he's good and because he's great in power, he won't let the wicked off. He will bring justice, but he's slow to it. He's slow to anger. So because judgment is harsh and God has to do it, he is slow in judgment. He does not delight in judgment. In Isaiah chapter 28, verse 21, the Bible calls judgment God's strange work. It's so foreign to him. It's not something he wants to do. God wants to bless us. He wants to just pour out his goodness upon us. But he will judge us if necessary when we continue to rebel. 
In Ezekiel 18, verse 32, another prophet speaking about this topic says the Lord, he says, for I have no pleasure in the death of him that dies, says the Lord. Wherefore, turn yourselves, turn around, repent, and live. See, eventually, if we don't turn around, we can't live. God has to do something. He has to stop it. In Genesis 6-3, the Bible said, and that's why God sent the flood. He said, my spirit will not always strive with man. I will give you room to repent. I will give you time to turn around. But there is a point of no return. There does come a time when the Lord says, enough. And I have to do something about it. I have to stop you. Because if you continue to do this, you're going to continue to hurt more and more people around you. Now, the process of God's judgment isn't necessarily immediate. That's why it took 400 years for God to bring judgment upon the the Amorites, they're called, the Canaanites there. Back in Genesis, the Lord told Abraham, he said, listen, Abraham, your people are going to go into Egypt and they're going to be enslaved for 400 years until the sins of the Amorites are full, until I have had enough and I have to do something about it. For 400 years, what did God do? Well, Romans chapter one talks about it. When we persist in our rebellion against God and we refuse to repent, the Bible says God gives us over. And the first thing he gives us over is to idolatry. He says, you don't want to worship me? Fine, worship your gods and see how that works out. And the idea is when we're sitting in front of our God, whether it be money or pleasure, entertainment, or a little tiki thing, that we're supposed to eventually come to our senses and go, what am I doing? This is not good. This is a waste of time. This is not even real. This is not worth my life. And to repent. Now, if we don't do that, the Lord says, fine, I'll give you over to all your desires. I'll let you have whatever you want. Instead of standing in your way, trying to put obstacles in your way, I'll let you have whatever you want. Till you get to a place that the things that you want and you get are even disgusting. We look at our culture today and we're rampant with our sexual sin. And so the Lord says, the idea again is so that you look around and you go, what am I doing here? You're like the prodigal son, why am I in this slop? pit with the pigs and you come to your senses and you return to the Lord. Now, if you won't do that, then the final giving up is the Lord says, I'll give you over to a reprobate mind where you can't even tell the difference between right and wrong, that you will do things that will get you in so much trouble that finally you'll come to your senses. If you don't listen to that, that's when God's final judgment comes. That's what happened to the Canaanites. Time and time again, God gave them over and they just stewed in their juices. They just stayed where they were, resisted even harder. That's what's gonna happen in the book of Revelation. God's gonna give mankind over. He says, this is what you want? You want a world without me? You want a life without me? You've got it. Let's see how it goes. And we're, come to the, we're going to come to the brink of destroying ourselves. And the crazy thing is that Jesus says, if I didn't come back, you would destroy yourselves. So the Lord eventually has to stop it. He has to put a stop to it. But even then, it's slow. So yes, this is harsh. It's very heavy. Judgment is harsh. It is final. But the Lord moves slow towards it. He doesn't delight in it. It's just because he does it because eventually he has to do something about it. Because there are so many people living in this land, so many nations they have to defeat, it's gonna take time to defeat them all. So Israel's going to be tempted at some point to slack to either say, well, we've got this covered, we've got enough land for ourselves already, or maybe to seek alliances to help them finish the task with some of the other people there. And the Lord says, I'm the only ally you need. So in verse three, back in Deuteronomy chapter seven, the Lord says, neither shall you make marriages with them. Your daughter you shall not give unto his son, nor his daughter shall you take unto your son. For they will turn away your son from following me that they may serve other gods. So will the anger of the Lord be kindled against you and it'll destroy you suddenly. 
the word there to make marriages with, it actually means to enter into an alliance through a marriage contract. Very common back in that day. You would say, hey, you know, I've got this business, you've got this business. How about we join forces and we make it official through marrying off our kids? And the idea was, he doesn't take care of my daughter, I'm breaking off the business deal with you, vice versa. So there was an interest there to make sure that the marriage succeeded because it was a good business deal for you. And the Lord says, no, you're not going to do that. Why? Because they'll turn away. The word there means to cause someone to change the path they're on. They will cause you to go off the right path, turn away from following me to serve other gods. God above all else, wants a relationship with his people. And anything that gets in the way of that is a bad thing. It's a bad thing. Do you realize how much the Lord loves you? How much he wants to know you? And how he wants to be the source of everything you need? This is one of the principles that we're gonna see translated into the New Testament because the New Testament talks to us about not marrying an unbeliever. If you're a Christian here tonight, you should not be dating or going into marrying an unbeliever. If they are, you're in sin right now and you're asking for a world of heartache. If you're already married to an unbeliever, you need to stay with them. 1 Corinthians 7 is very clear about that. But if you're single, you are only allowed to marry a believer. To do otherwise is sin and it sets you up for heartache. Trust me. You might say, oh, but they respect my faith and this and that. That's great. But you're not marrying somebody who respects just how you think about things. You want to share life with somebody. And what's the most important thing to you if you're a Christian? Jesus, right? And if you can't share that with your spouse, it's going to cause you heartache over time. You don't want to get involved in that. So I don't care how cute they are. I don't care how nice they are. I don't care how much money they make. It's not worth it. And the Lord says, the problem is, if you do this, then I'm going to have to judge you. See, God wanted to bless Israel, but if they turned away from him, he'd have to judge them just like he was judging these Canaanites. God wasn't picking on the Canaanites. He was judging them because of their wickedness. And he would have to do that for Israel and eventually did do it for Israel because of their wickedness. Now, God didn't want to do that. And so he gives them some clear instructions about how to deal with those who are still around them as it's taking time to defeat them. He says, verse five, but thus shall you deal with them. You shall destroy their altars, break down, which means to shatter their images, and you will cut down their groves. The groves were the Asherah poles. The goddess Asherah was a goddess of fertility and they would set up these poles and have very sexualized rituals. Burn their graven images with fire. Graven images here just means any other representation of a deity. Now, God says you have a zero tolerance policy toward idolatry. That's how you're going to survive as you take these groups out one by one. You're going to survive by having a zero tolerance policy toward idolatry. Now, this would be very hard for some of those folks. We were trying to figure out where to go to lunch today, and someone said, hey, let's go here. And I'm like, uh, if we go there, every time I ask them for a salad, they put bread on it. And I just have a hard time throwing out food. I just do. I have a hard time throwing out food. So if it's on my plate, it's going to be very difficult for me to set it aside and just chuck it. So I'm probably going to eat it, and it's going to be bad for me. If you eat bread, no condemnation. I'm just saying for me, it's, it's not something I should be doing. So anyway, how did I get there? Oh, the idea, you know, for me, that's something I need to not do. So I need to make sure I have a zero tolerance policy. And it's the same thing with Israel. They would be tempted because some of those idols, they would be very ornate. There would be lots of tempting reasons to keep them around. Oh, they're a part of history. Oh, they're beautiful. Oh, they're worth lots of money. We, you know, can't we just sell it, melt it down? But God has a zero tolerance policy for idolatry. And I ask you, do you have that kind of policy in your life toward idols? I'm not just talking about little tiki gods. I'm talking about things that become more important in the Lord in our lives. Now, this is a strict and an extreme policy, zero tolerance. Why can there be no compromise with idolatry? 
Well, the Lord's going to give us quite a few reasons here in verses 6 through 15. The first reason why it's important to have a zero tolerance policy with idolatry is because Israel and us, we are supposed to be different. Look at verse 6. For you are a holy people unto the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a special people unto himself above all the people that are upon the face of the earth. The word holy there, it means unique, set apart. The word chosen there, it means he picked you out. He selected you out. Now, what did he select you for? Because you were just a prize? Not necessarily. But the word special there, it means that you're a special people to unto himself, means you're his treasured possession. See, Israel was picked by God to be unique, to be different, to be those who loved God supremely and experienced his blessings so that through that, they would shine as a light in a world of idolatry and that more people would want to follow the Lord. When people were looking at Israel, they were supposed to think, man, you guys, God is great. What's your secret? And they would say, our God takes care of us. Who's your God? Well, let me tell you. The idols that you're following out there, they're not real. You shouldn't follow them. You should follow the living God. He's alive. He's real. And he can take care of you. That was the whole function of why they were to be different. And it's interesting because 1 Peter 2.9 says God picked us for the same reasons. It says, for you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, which means a treasured possession of the Lord. God selected us, not because we replace Israel. We're not the new nation. We don't have a land and our warfare certainly isn't against flesh and blood. But God selected us to be different, selected us to be his treasured possession so that others would see our light and want to know more about the God that we serve. So our zero tolerance policy is the same. No compromise with the enemy forces. No compromise with idolatry. Only then will we be a light like Israel was supposed to be, a light for the Lord in a world of idolatry. Only then will we be doing what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. So the first reason why it's important to have a zero tolerance policy with idolatry is because we're to be different. It could be tempting to think that God picked us because we brought something to the table that he needs. Well, let's get Will on our team. I mean, he's really good at this stuff. It can be tempting to think we're better than others, but God corrects that thought in the very next verse. Look at verse seven. He says, now the Lord did not set his love upon you nor choose you because you were more in number than any people because you were the smallest, the fewest of all people. Later in Deuteronomy, the Lord will tell him, the Lord didn't pick you because you were better than anybody else. In fact, you were the most stubborn, stiff-necked, hard-hearted people God could find. That's why he picked you. Because if God can use you, he can use anybody. That's what he says, not my words. So when you look at yourself and go, God picked me, just remember that God picked you because like Paul said, to be an example, that if God could save the chief of sinners, he could save anybody. If God can save and transform this life, Oh, he can work in your life. He can work in your life. We're to be that kind of a testimony. It's important to have a zero tolerance policy toward idolatry because we're not intrinsically better than anybody else out there. God didn't pick us because of anything more lovable about us or because we had a better skill set to reach the rest of the world with his light. It says he set his love upon us for two reasons. He picked Israel for two reasons. He says, number one, verse eight, but because the Lord loved you. And, number two, the second reason, because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers. God is love. He, he loves the entire world because it's who he is. He loved Israel. Now, you think he didn't love them specially, but he picked them because he loved them, just like he loves everybody. But he had also made a promise to their forefathers 
that he would bring them into the land and give them that land. God had told Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that he would give them this land and God keeps his promises because he's a good God. And that brings us to the third reason why you know, we need to have a zero tolerance policy with idolatry. Not only because we're called to be different, not only because we're not intrinsically better than anybody else, but because he's the only good God. Any idolatry of any sort is bad for us because he's the only good God. God will call each one of us to difficult tasks. We may not always understand how things will work out or why things are the way they are, but we can trust who God is. We can trust his character and past faithfulness. He desires to bless us, and as we walk obediently, we will find that following his word without compromise is always worth it. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.